Well, congregation, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and, and just read verses 8 through verse 1. Actually through verse 2 in chapter 2. So First John chapter 1 starting at verse 8. Hear once again the word of the Lord. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and now to the preaching of his word. This morning we concluded that first chapter, 1 John chapter 1, concerning the doctrine of sin, by considering the two false professions made, by those made in the image of God concerning sin, namely the professions that one is without sin anymore and the one that states one is never with sin in the first place. These statements we concluded are false and make God out to be a liar. In addition, from the closing verses in in John's first chapter, we concluded that there is only one true confession. There's only one true confession concerning those made in the image of God, and that is that we are sinners before a thrice holy God. All have sinned and still do sin. And likewise, all must confess their sin. For there is only one who remains faithful in his forgiveness to sinners. God promises to forgive all those that come to him in true repentance. That is good news, congregation. That God is faithful in his forgiveness. He's not obligated to forgive any. It will forgive every single one that come to him in true repentance. So if you are living in sin today, if you have not come to Christ, the answer is not to deny your sin or to deny your disposition. It's not to deny where you are. That's the world. The world does that. The world wants to deny, wants you to think happy thoughts and forget about the reality of sin. Don't worry about the wrongs that you have done. Don't worry about the transgression of God's law that you are currently engaged with. It'll all go away. The Bible, though, on the other hand, which is God's word, which is the word we find comfort in, is very clear with regards to the sin of man in this light. And that is by way of the book of Numbers, where God makes it clear that man's sin will certainly find him out. Man's sin will certainly find him out. 
This is why trying to suppress sin or trying to forget about your sin is futile. It's, it's like a waste of time. It's, you're, it's not a, it's not a endeavor you're going to engage in and find a solution in and of yourself. And here's where it gets even, you, we can push it further. It's not an endeavor you're going to engage in and find a solution outside of Christ. Those that live a life of trying to hide their sin and act like it doesn't affect every part of their life will have their sin take them to hell. There's only two places that sin will take you. There's only two places that sin will take you. We ended on the place that sin must take us, which is the foot of the cross, in repentance and faith, in humility, going before the Lord and confessing your sin that He may exalt you. And the only other place that sin will take the sinner is to hell where there is everlasting weeping and sorrow. This is a place where your tears will not be wiped away and the pain that sin brings forth will never cease. There's only two places you can take your sin, to the foot of the cross in humility, knowing that the wages of sin is death, knowing the wickedness of sin, and most importantly, needing your sin to be forgiven. The forgiveness that is found in Christ. Or you die in your sin, and face the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. This is because sin is evil, has no part with God and His people in eternity. It is our enemy. Sin has separated us from God, and in some very real sense, it still does. Therefore, the Scriptures are clear. Go before the Lord, confess your sin, and He is faithful in His forgiveness unto you. Indeed, these are liberating words for the sinner. These are words of hope. These are words of comfort. Words of comfort. Confess our sin, and God is faithful and just in His forgiveness. Those are comforting words, Christian. And this this afternoon, we are continuing to deal with this enemy that we call sin, But let us continue to examine the scriptures by way of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, with regards to sin and how we find comfort still in this battle with sin. To open up our passage this afternoon, the Apostle John first reiterates, verse 1 of chapter 2, who he is writing this letter to under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And subsequently, he states his purpose of the letter. I I kind of mentioned that John is writing to Christians, and I kind of inserted that without any kind of proof, which is fine. But here we have that clear uh, in the text. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, from a natural standpoint, it may be somewhat odd here that the Apostle John is referring to God's people as his children. But when you consider the context and what will come to follow, it's certainly fitting. It's a fitting description. The Apostle John considers these brothers and sisters in Christ that he is writing to his disciples. 
They are men and women of the Lord that he has discipled, maybe from a distance, maybe some face-to-face. These are believers that are new in the faith. Obviously, as the death of Christ is still very fresh, right? This is the first century. And there are believers that need guidance and direction. These are Christians that need to know what to do with this Christian life. This is why John calls them his little children. He uses this phrase a few times throughout the epistles. He is a spiritual father, if you will, to these saints. In the same way, your pastor is a spiritual father to the members of this church. We have many brethren, but few fathers. Congregation, this is the, what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth. These are men of authority that God has given us for our spiritual growth and nourishment. These are important brothers in the Lord. Normatively speaking, again, these are usually one's elders in the church. Or perhaps these may be um, men that have discipled you at an early age. It doesn't necessarily have to be an elder in your church. It could be an uncle or an older brother that has been walking with the Lord, that has taken you under his wing and discipled you for a time. These are men that have great care when it comes to your spiritual well-being as they are instrumental to your growth in Christ. These three words that John uses communicate an important aspect of the relationship between John and his writers. It really sets the tone. John is really showing great humility here by speaking of them in this way just by saying that they are his little children. He doesn't say little children. He doesn't say children, these things I write to you. He could have have phrased it this way, but he says my little children. These are believers that he has a close relationship, an intimate relationship with, and therefore cares about their spiritual well-being. Now, yes, we may say, well, well, pastor, well, we have two Christians in a room, and they might not know each other, but they know they're Christians. Shouldn't they care about one another's well-being? Of course. They should pray for each other. They should seek to love each other, all of these things. But there is a different care and different approach that a teacher or a father takes with regards to his child. And this is the very similar approach that St. That John takes with the Christians here. He was a seasoned saint that cared deeply about the well-being of God's people, like a father cares for his son. We can just conclude just by the first chapter that John's desire is that these Christians would glorify the Lord in all that they do. That they would know how to recognize these false doctrines and false teachings creeping into the church and stand firm Not on something that is tickling their ear, but stand firm in Christ. So he writes to God's people in a very father-like manner. The way I've described this comes down to one word. Comfort. 
Like a father comforts his children in a time of need, John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives comfort to little children with the words of life and the giver of life. So this afternoon I've titled the sermon, Be Comforted, Little Children. And we really find our comfort by two ways, at least from this text. We find our comfort by the word, and we find our comfort by way of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first point, comforted by the word. My little children, I write these things, or these things I write to you so that you may not sin. It's important to note to consider our sermon from this morning that an unhealthy relationship with sin will always serve to disrupt one's communion with God. This is true, especially for the believer. This is true, especially for the Christian. Even when it comes to accepting that we are sinners before a thrice holy God, our understanding of ourselves and our sinful disposition must be understood according to the scriptures. In other words, if we're going to say we're sinners because we sin, that's true. There's nothing wrong with that statement. But we must follow with what the scriptures say about what it means to be a sinner. Even accepting that we are sinners must be done according to the scriptures. If there's an exa- a lot of examples we can show to illustrate this. For example, repentance. True repentance, we know, is not merely saying that we have transgressed the law of God or that we have failed to conform to the holy will of God. That's not true repentance. That's admitting that you've sinned. Saying that I've transgressed God's law is saying that I've sinned. But just admitting that you have sinned is not true repentance. True repentance is turning from the very law that you have broken and looking to Christ for forgiveness. That's true repentance according to the scriptures. Yet in both the example of just saying that you're a sinner and looking to Christ for forgiveness, there, are admit- there is an admittance of sin. Well, likewise with the Christian walk. We must come to the reality that sin is still ever-present in our lives, not going away until the return of Christ or until our souls go to be with God. And we, therefore, must know how to fight it. We must know what to do when we find ourselves away from God by way of our actions. We first and foremost find comfort in the word. I write to you that you may not sin. While John is penning this letter, these are... There, there must be much in, in what goes into this epistle. There's certainly a lot that goes into this epistle. And one may read not just the first letter, but all the letters, and conclude, well, there are probably many purposes that John has in mind under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wants to communicate the doctrine of sin, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, assurance, Right, this, this entire letter is filled with doctrine, the doctrine of assurance. But here he says, he writes these things so that you may not sin. 
It's important that when we are dealing with sin, that when we are battling with sin, we must turn to the word that has been written to us. We must come to the word of God, believe it is true, and know that it is a means by which God protects us. He writes these things for their comfort, for their understanding, for their knowledge. He writes these things knowing that they might find, they might find refuge in the words written. Think about the psalmist. Think about Psalm 1 for a moment. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the blessed man is not, that, is not the one that continues to transgress, continues to deny sin, but the blessed man is the one who confesses his sin, delights in the very law of the Lord, and meditates on this law day and night. And what happens when this man finds comfort in God's word? What happens when the blessed man in Psalm 1 finds comfort in God's word? Notice the text. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And as a form of protection, the Word of God is a great tool for God's people. We find comfort in the Word. We also find the Word as a great tool, a great weapon, a sword, if you will. A wise man in war uses all of the weapons at his disposal and finds safety precisely in where he is told to find it. We must likewise be skilled with the word of God and find comfort in times of battling sin. And how does the word of God not only serve as a means for us to find comfort and rest, but also as a means to keep us pure and upright? Well, to this I have a few answers. We first know that we find comfort in the Word of God as the Word of God serves as a means to keep us pure and upright as it reveals to us His will. We find comfort knowing His will for us is revealed in His Word. Time and time again, we ask questions like, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, where would you have me go? Lord, I've I found myself in this particular sin. Or in this particular predicament based on my lack of wisdom, what's next? Well, we first and foremost must find the answer by way of his word, as his word reveals to us his will. His word reveals to us what we are ought to do before him, what we ought to do before him. Secondly, his word serves as a means to keep us pure and upright as it confronts us with our sin. Time and time again, the, the world is asking questions like, well, what is sin? Is this wrong? Is this right? Is there a such thing as objective morality? Are all morals subjective? Things like that. And the Christian takes that bait for a moment. Yet that's problematic as the word of God already gives us a clear understanding of morality. What is right and wrong? 
And we are to, to submit ourselves to the word of God. As the law confronts, or as the law is presented to us, our sin is confronted. We find comfort that even when we deceive ourselves with our own spiritual evaluations, when we submit to the word of God, the spirit of God leading us to that conviction, to that understanding of our shortcomings, is in no way, shape, or form a spirit of deception. Thirdly, the word of God serves as a means to keep us pure and upright as it's consistently instructing us unto godliness. We find great comfort in the fact that we are a work in progress, that sanctification takes time, and God has given us a great resource of growth and godliness in his word. Therefore, we are comforted by the word of God, even when we are battling with sin, as the word of God reminds us that this battle is a lifelong battle. Sanctification is a process that is not an overnight process. It takes much time, much prayer, much supplication. Yet God has not left us alone. He gives us his word as a great comfort. And the word serves as a means to keep us pure and upright. It is comforting to us as it is central in our worship. We gather together each and every Lord's Day around the word of God. The word of God is that peace that continues to be part of our worship, that continues to be everything that is our worship. Therefore, we find comfort in God's word as Christ speaks to us every Lord's Day through his word, by way of his word. So we find comfort as little children, as as those who are, are struggling through this battle of sin, by way of the word, first and foremost, in submitting to it, in knowing that it's true, in knowing that it reveals to us the holy will of God, the law of God, in knowing that it is a means by which God uh, instructs us unto godliness, and knowing it's the very means by which we bring him glory on the Lord's day or in any aspect of worship. But secondly, we are comforted by our advocate. John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now surely John is not implying that there is a possibility in any way, shape, or form that anybody reading this can come to a conclusion where they have stopped sinning. Again, we've dealt with that in the prior three verses. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as someone who is, has finally ended their battle with sin on this earth and are continuing to press on in perfect holiness. That doesn't exist. So he knows that there are those reading this who still have a problem with sin, who are still battling with sin, every single one of them. Yet when we sin, what are we to do again? We are to confess our sin and know that Christ is interceding for us, know that God is faithful and just in forgiving us of our sin. And surely that is comforting in and of itself. 
But the comfort actually strengthens as we think of what that actually looks like. As we theologically run through what that actually looks like. And we conclude that we find comfort in the confession of sin because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Specific, specifically here, because of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator before God. The text begins with John saying, if anyone sins. Again, the way that this is worded can be tricky and is often taken out of context by different uh, groups professing the name of Christ. What the apostle is implying here is not that there will be a time where someone doesn't sin or where there will be a time where sin is done away with for these people reading reading this letter. But rather, he is saying when one does sin, And he is speaking to those who have already sinned, confessed their sin, and know themselves to be sinners before a thrice holy God. When you do sin, in other words, which is an inevitable consequence of the fall tied to your nature, you are not alone. That is John's point here. When you do sin, you are not alone. Sinner who is saved by God's grace. You have Christ. He's given you his word. I write this, or these things I write to you. He's given you his word. He's given you his son. I mean, if we were alone, if we were alone in our relationship with sin, that would indeed be bad news. If anyone, if any one of us in this room we're alone with our relationship towards sin. That would be bad news. The saints of old, even the saints of old were not alone. They had a sacrificial system. They had high priests. They had the promises of God. Anytime God left them alone in their sin, there was great judgment. Think about what the scripture says with regards to God leaving sinners alone in their sin. What what? What examples do we have in Scripture of this? Well, how about the time of Noah? How about Sodom? How about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the judges? I mean, forget an example. You have an entire book in the Bible of what it looks like for God to leave those made in His image alone in their sin. It's never a good thing, at least for the, for the people. It's never a good thing. It almost always results, it does not, not almost, it always results in destruction. During the time of Noah, destruction. During the time of Sodom, destruction. During the time of Judges, destruction. Now it was a cycle of destruction, 11 cycles of destruction, nonetheless, or 12 cycles of destruction. But thank God he has not left us alone. And that is John's point. God has not left you alone, little children. He has not left you alone dealing with this battle of sin. He has given you a mediator, his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean for Christ to be our advocate? Well, as I stated in my opening point, even when we come to Christ and begin to grow in the grace and knowledge, sin remains a problem in our lives. Even when we confess our sin, to the one who is faithful, we're 
going to still need to confess our sin to the one who is faithful. It's not a one-and-done type thing. Sin still remains a problem in our lives. We don't love God like we ought to. We don't love our neighbor like we ought to. The Bible teaches that when we sin, we must go before him, confess our sin, seek his forgiveness, and trust that he will forgive all those that come to him by faith. And the only reason that we can do this, this is where like, it's almost like John's wrapping this up in a bow. The only reason we're able to come to God, confess our sins, is because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took upon himself our flesh, lived in obedience to all of his Father's commands, and presented himself, our sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice before God. And by his death and resurrection, we now have access to God. This is Paul's, one of Paul's big points in Romans chapter 5. One of the, what, is, what are the benefits of justification? There are many. One being that we have access to God. We can approach the throne of grace. That's why Paul tells, uh, that's why Paul tells the, uh, the Hebrews to um, approach the throne in a, in a time of need. Well, he can tell that to the Hebrews because the throne is now approachable. How is the throne approachable? Because of Christ. Because he's tore down that wall. As heaven received Christ, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, seated in that position of power, authority, supremacy, superiority. And we now have access to God because of him. He is our advocate. That is what it means for Christ to be our advocate, the one that is on our side. He is the advocate for sinners like you and I. As the Bible teaches clearly that he is the only mediator before God and man. He is the righteous one that sinners need to present their petitions before the Lord. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. This is why the Bible teaches that none come to the Father save through the Son. He is our advocate before the Father. And he is our only advocate before the Father, properly speaking. Jesus is the one that knew no sin. He is the one that remained undefiled. And he is the only one that has died, rose again, and is seated in such a position of authority. Many seek other forms of mediation. This is, I think, important. Many people seek other forms of mediation through the dead, through relics. I mean, I don't know how many people I see left and right wearing things on their neck or their, uh, or their wrist, or their ankle, or tattooed on their forehead, and they believe that that thing brings them closer to God. And even in times of need, they'll grab whatever relic and rub on it. When we're in a time of need, we need to be on our knees. When we're in a time of need, we need to look down and pray. We need to humble ourselves again. That God may exalt us. All these different uh, forms of mediation are all failures. Neo-spiritualism, whatever it may be. There's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ. It's interesting, saints. Since the fall, man has made... Man has sought out many schemes against the Lord and desperately tries to seek to fill this void they have 
through different silly means, whatever it may be, to bring them closer to God. But God already gives the way out, makes the path clear, and that path is through His Son. He's the only one that stands before the Father today, even now, on behalf of those who bear His name. He is our advocate in heaven, and He is our advocate on this earth. Seated at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us with regards to prayer. I mean, for the saint trusting that the Lord, trusting the Lord's mediation, knowing that they have a Christ, they have Christ as their advocate. We we find comfort in the fact that Christ is praying for us. We find comfort in the fact that He hears our prayers every day, every time we go to Him. No matter no matter the degree of our faith, prayers of the weak, prayers of the weary. Mumbled prayers or prayers that are filled with tears and crying that you can't get out. Christ intercedes for us. He is our advocate. Therefore, God does not see our prayers because of Christ, tainted with sin or weak or weary. He doesn't see our wicked motives that may have been in play when we initially raised those petitions unto Him. He sees our prayers perfected in His Son and will answer them according to His most holy will. And saints, again, that should be a great comfort to us. That because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. And, it's, and that, that's, that's just the start of it. That's the reality. That because Jesus Christ has died, rose again, He intercedes for us, He is our advocate. But then... He even teaches us how to pray, what to pray for, what it looks like to pray. Gives multiples example, multiple examples of this, the very words to pray. If we are struggling with the very words to pray, if we are, if we are seeking to find comfort in Christ who is our advocate and struggling to find the words to pray, we consider Things like the Lord's Prayer, the various examples in Scripture where the Lord Jesus prays for those whom He loves. John 17. Or the method of praying. Well, what should my prayer life be like? Well, the Lord Jesus gives us examples of that as well. He prays in the morning. He prays in the midst of temptation. He prays as something, as something important is approaching. Now, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know the will of the we don't know the mind of the Lord as Paul says. We don't have the mind of the Lord, but we do have the mind of Christ. So we 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 see what the Lord is doing in time and space. We see what the Lord is doing by way of his providence and we pray unto that end. In addition, he teaches us what his words mean, what his word means by way of his ministers. So it's not enough that he that that he just continues to show us examples of prayer or shows us the method of praying by his own example. But he continues in sending his spirit and using the means of the ministers to teach what his word means and keep us close to him. And lastly, he is our advocate to the end. 
He was not only that our advocate at that hour we first believed, where we sent that prayer, that garbled up prayer up to him when we first came to faith in Christ. He's not only our advocate now, this Lord's Day, but he is our advocate to the very end. And again, this is a great means of comfort. Jesus Christ and his offer to comfort you as the one who stands in the place of sinners before the Lord is to the very end. He is the advocate of those who will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, covered in his blood. As your advocate, he opens, open, he opens up the door for you to enter into glory. And as you accept him, as you, as you are holding fast to him today, he holds fast to you even on that day. So we find great comfort that Christ, as our advocate, is our advocate to the very end. He will be the one that presents us before the Father blameless on that last day. Yet he is not the advocate of every single person on this earth. Many deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Many die in their sin denying the Lord Jesus Christ, wanting nothing to do with Him. And if you die and reject Jesus Christ, today He will most certainly reject you on the last day. So what about you, lost friend? Have you considered what that last day will consist of? Who is the advocate that you have today with regards to your sin? Is it yourself? Is it a relic? Maybe a piece of jewelry? Is it another religion? None of those, and I mean none of them, can stand before the Lord on that last day and give an account for you. But for the people of God, we have an advocate, the one who presents us truly blameless. May he be your comfort and guide to that day. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word as it is a light that guides us a great means of comfort living in this fallen world. We thank you, Lord, as we deal with sin, as we seek to glorify you in all that we do. We thank you, Lord, that we have an advocate who is seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We thank you, Lord, that you do not hold our sin against us, that we are not condemned before you because of our sin. But instead, Lord, 
we have Christ, who is far greater than anything this world has to offer. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in us, that you would be glorified above all things, and that we would continue, Lord, to worship you privately in our homes, with our families, with other families, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our precious Savior, all to your glory. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.